Hey everyone, this is Alan Schimmel, and you're watching DevOps Unbound. For those, those of you watching for the first time, DevOps Unbound is a bi-weekly video series where we tackle interesting topics related to DevOps. Once every four to six weeks, we do a live roundtable with a live audience questions and live audience participation. And we invite you to our next one. You can find out scheduling at DevOpsUnbound.com. Today, though, is a session just with our panel. And what a panel it is. Let me introduce you to them. Um, first off, let me introduce our friend Sanjeev Sharma of Truist. Sanjeev, uh, maybe you want to introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, sure. Thanks, Alan. First of all, thanks. Great to see you all. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be able to meet in person soon. But uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm the head of uh, automation and platform engineering at Truist Bank. Uh, Truist, for those of you who might not know, is the new bank that was created last year by the merger of uh, BBNT and SunTrust. Uh, I have various hats I wear at Truist, but my background is mostly in the DevOps and cloud adoption space. Excellent, thank you Sanjeev and welcome. Sanjeev, I should mention, is also the author of the DevOps Ad Adoption Playbook. Um, next, we're really, really pleased and honored to have Cornelia Davis with us. Cornelia is, a, of course, a pretty well-known thought leader and, and leader in the DevOps space, but is also at WeaveWorks. Cornelia, welcome, if you want to give a little background. Sure, yeah, thank you so much, Ellen. It's so great to be on again. Um, yeah, I am the CTO at WeaveWorks, and you might know WeaveWorks as the company that coined the term GitOps that has been kind of a driving that movement. And GitOps is just an element of a broader category, which is really developer platforms, which is what we're talking about many, many times when we talk about DevOps. And so prior to WeaveWorks, I've been here for about a year and a half, I was at Pivotal, where I worked on Cloud Foundry and Kubernetes-based developer platforms, you know, platform teams for enterprises for quite some time. Um, and I'm also the author of a book uh, called Cloud Native Patterns, which is a book aimed at architects and software developers, helping them learn how to build software for this highly changing, highly distributed, constantly changing, highly distributed environment that is the cloud. Absolutely. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Last but not least on our panel for today is our friend Kurt Chase with Tricentis. I should mention Tricentis is a sponsor of DevOps Unbound, and thank, thank you, Tricentis, for sponsoring. But um, Kurt, why don't you give them your background? Yeah, thanks, Alan. Great to be here today with Cornelia and Sanjeev. Nice to meet both of you. I'm currently running release management and engineering services at Tricentis, which uh, engineering services is a group that provides cross-cutting services primarily for internal engineering, but uh, effectively for the whole corporation as well. Um, prior to Tricentis, I spent years at Splunk, uh, again, supporting the engineering function, uh, all the CICD builds and releases and things like that. And then prior to that, I spent uh, almost two decades at Autodesk producing the AutoCAD, uh, multiple releases of the AutoCAD software products. So again, it's great to be here today with all of you. Um, excited to talk about some of the things we've learned over the last year, year and a half, and what a year it's been. Holy cow. <laughs> yes, it has. Then let me next and finally introduce my co-host here at DevOps Unbound, my good friend, partner, Mitchell Ashley. Mitch, why don't you give a little background? Thanks, Alan. And of course, I'm excited to have our panel. Thank you for joining us, all of you today. 
Uh, I'm Mitch Ashley, CEO of Accelerated Strategies, analyst firm that focuses on DevOps, cloud-native, cybersecurity, digital transformation. Uh, also work with Alan as part of MediaOps and folks that put on this event uh, with a CTO of that organization. So it's uh, a lot of uh, DevOps practicing and observing what others are doing. So excited to hear what Sanjeev and Cornelia and Kurt have to say too. All right. Thank you, Mitchell. And as I mentioned, DevOps Unbound is sponsored by Tricentis. So many thanks to them. Today's episode, folks, you know, I, as I mentioned off camera, I don't want to jinx anyone or anything, but at least here in the U.S., we 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 seem to, or at least we hope that we're seeing um, this whole COVID, you know, life sort of starting to recede in our rearview mirror. We are returning to normal or a new normal. Some may say recklessly too quickly, or some may say not quickly enough, but certainly the return to normal is is on and and accelerating. Um, but, you know, there have been many, many lessons, many, many experiences, some painful, extremely painful from a business and a humanity point of view over this last 14, 15 months or whatever it's been. Um, there's also been a tremendous amount of success, a tremendous amount of acceleration, a tremendous amount of, geez, this really, this worked. We didn't know if it would work, but it worked probably the internet being the first thing, right? Where would we be with this without an internet? But um, can we, let's take a moment and let's, as I say, hope and pray that this is in our rear view mirror or starting to move to the rear view mirror. Um, what, what, what are the lessons? What, what can we learn? What will we take forward from this? And I, you know, I don't want to boil the ocean because I think there's a lot. But if I asked each of you to give me three things that you really, you think, not just you personally or your organization, but the tech industry has learned, business, the business world has learned, perhaps society in general, humanity has learned. What, what would you say, you know, some of those things are? Um, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But Kurt, you always have something yeah, to say. I introduced I'll, you last. We'll start. Sure, with you. I'll jump right in. And, and one thing that's amazing to me, not so much from the technology or engineering or R and D side. Let's talk about business here. The other aspects of the business that were able to adapt to remote work. That to me was pretty incredible. I, you know, when 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 COVID really took hold, I wasn't too worried about software engineers and folks producing software, working from home, doing their coding, testing, all that. The other functions, finance, legal, things that are required to ship your products, seeing those go remote at the pace they did, that was pretty incredible. I think they definitely uh, took advantage of some of the learnings from their individual engineering teams. But to me, that's one thing that sticks out right away um, is the, the speed at which businesses adapted to working remotely and the success they achieved across the functions in the business. That was incredible to me. Agreed. Uh, I. I I mean, the, the the speed of adoption was, was something. Cornelia, did you want to say something? Yeah, sorry, I was muted there. Um, I did want oh. to chime in because I, I agree. And one of the ones that really knocked my socks off was how quickly call centers went remote. Yeah. Because that isn't something I would have expected. I would have expected them to still be kind of really tied into their tel tel 
telephony services and, and, you know, the phones that are on their desks. Um, But I spoke with many, many people, you know, various customer service people from the banks and from, you know, the Amazon.com, you know, well, there's not that much of a, you know, call-in center there, but from all of these different organizations where when you chatted with these, these folks, they were like, yep, within a week, they were able to move everything, move everybody remote in these traditionally really physical call center-based systems, which means that there had to be some preparation. I don't know if it was intentional, but there had to be something that allowed them to flip that switch so quickly. Is it just forwarding phones? Is it just VPNs? I don't know. No, no, it was... So I, I, I have some info on that, if I can. I, I interviewed a fellow down here in Florida. I think he was out of Tampa. And he operated multiple call centers, like in Costa Rica, which is actually a call center capital, believe it or not. That's a b- big business down there. It turned out that the software they used, right? People In call centers, they don't just, Kurt just doesn't call someone randomly. Everyone gets assigned their calls or their inbound when a call comes in, it gets assigned. The software they used within the call center itself worked just as well. The person didn't have to be in the desk next to you. He could have been anywhere, it turns out. Or she could have been anywhere. And so it worked just as well in a remote thing. So they still used the software they were using that tracked how many calls they did, who they spoke to, the notes, putting it into the central database. Yes, they had to be cloud-based, right? Because there was no one in the call center to kind of run that uh, infrastructure. But the software turned out worked remotely as well as it worked on everyone's desk in in the in the call center it was an amazing thing and so what they found again and this is going to be i think something that's going to be a reoccurring theme who needs the physical call center they don't they don't need that infrastructure anymore they could have people working home just just as well and so the the more advanced ones and you've probably seen this yourselves you call someone they may be very well at home but they're giving you the same mediocre service that you get when you call the call center itself right um but yeah no and that's the point i i think with the business it's applicable across functions there it's amazing and what business learn that they can still be extremely successful even if everyone's remote and having that pool of remote talent that changes everything. Right. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think a couple of things there to be noted there, right? First of all, sorry, sorry, uh, Cornelia, I think I spoke over you. Uh, you know, one is uh, the pendulum also needs to swing back from that extreme. It, that's the challenge. <laughs> right? Because while we have people who are able to work from home because the technology is there. From an equity perspective, one has to look at people who cannot work from home who are being forced to. Yeah, And we experienced that when we opened up our, our offices. We are just beginning to open up our offices. June 1st was the first day folks could come back. And I was surprised to see some people who jumped at the opportunity and said, I want to go back. Yeah. Then when you look under the hood and you talk to them, you realize, you know, they have been struggling. They've been like operating out of a tiny closet, That's right? right? Uh, because they don't have the space or because they have toddlers or they've been struggling with internet uh, issues. And it is worse overseas than it is here in the U.S. So I think... Uh, 
the pendulum needs to swing back to a more normal position, but hopefully it won't swing all the way back to where they say everybody has to be on 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 site on premises, yeah. right? So I think I think that is definitely uh, some balance has to happen to recognize some people do need a workplace where they can work comfortably. You're absolutely yeah, right. I, I know a story of one individual who was in a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, and after three weeks, he couldn't handle it. It's like I, I don't have no space. Yeah. yeah. It and you know, honest, honestly, I have space, and I have a wonderful office, and I'm super comfortable, and I'm also desperate to get back into the office. Yeah. Because, and and I love Sanjeev that you called out the equity thing because yeah. that that's something that is so painfully obvious in the whole pandemic is that this has only broadened the inequities that we have across society, and we need to absolutely focus on that. But then the other lesson, you know, with me, I'm extremely privileged. I, I live this super comfortable. I never really had to worry about, you know, catching COVID. I could just choose to stay home. But humans need humans. And, um, you know, we're all coming to you on your two-dimensional screen. Um, I am super fortunate that last week I had the opportunity to have my first face-to-face with a couple of colleagues in over a year. And it was rejuvenating. I've been saying it's a 3D work world again instead of a 2D work world. Um, And so, I mean, humans need humans. Um, But you're right, Sanjeev. I think that the even bigger thing is that we really, really need to look at the inequities. And in the beginning, in the early parts of the pandemic, without getting too political here, we had all of this this narrative around these people who we considered essential workers who were kind of the forgotten, like taken for granted folks, and they were put on a pedestal. And that unfortunately didn't last that long. Um, And so we need to bring that back. And they weren't paid like they were that essential either, but that's all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty low pedestal. But let, no. you know what? You bring two things. I'm sorry, Mitch. I just want to make two quick points. Number one, when we talk about the inequality, let's be really clear. This has affected women and mothers especially. Mm-hmm. More than men, right? Absolutely. Mothers have had, because not only have had they had to work from home, but they've had to take care of the kids who are not in school. And it's very hard being a teacher a, a home care provider provider, and doing your work at work. And so how many women have had to drop out of the workforce because they had to take care of their kids because their kids were home and they didn't have an option. There was no home, there was no child care for them. So and the I, challenges I think, of re-entering the workforce. Right, and now they got to re-enter after, you know, months off and that's never easy. People want to know, well, where's why is it, why the gap in your resume? Well, there's a gap in my resume because I have this beautiful child that I'm raising, you know, and, and how dare you. But that that's number one. Number two, it is a case of the rich get richer, right? Companies that not only individuals, as you say, Cornelia, but companies that, you know, were able to leverage this. Man, they accelerated, but they accelerated at the expense of their competitors who couldn't. Right. Think about all the open retail shops in the malls near you and the strips. Right. And this is a place where I'd love to pull DevOps into the conversation because we are, of course, as a part of DevOps Unbound. Um, One of the things that I thought was impressive, and I've worked with some of these companies and, you know, by previous life at Pivotal, I worked with the Home Depot, for example. When -hmm. you had the Home Depot and you had these other organizations that in a matter of weeks updated their software so that you could do things like curbside pickup 
That right there is DevOps in action. It is the ability to release software, get feedback, release software in there was no six-week testing cycle that we used to do or Mm eight-week testing cycle. It was like, you know what? We are going to be testing in production because we didn't have time to test this for six weeks. So it brings in all of these these tools that, Kurt, I'm sure you have day-to-day experience with, which is these things that allow us to put safety nets in place to be able to release all the time. I mean, that is something where the people who were along their DevOps journey already had a leg up on those that didn't. You know, Cornelia, I had that exact experience where I couldn't get a computer. You couldn't, you couldn't get one shipped to you. They just weren't there. So I had to build, build a computer for some video work and did it solely from parts from Best Buy by curbside pickup to yeah. Best Buys in town. So it was, it literally was like a week later, all of a sudden I could do this. And I was, I was pretty shocked by it. One of the things I want to say, though, about what we're discussing is the the people dimension of it is is extremely important. I think there's a whole nother set of lessons for the business. I think we've re- we've pressed reset on a lot of assumptions about how businesses have to operate, that you have to be in an office. And essentially, we've kind of globalized the business, but just taking location out of it now. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are privileged and un- un- underserved and, un- and the people who aren't privileged. And those inequities probably are going to get bigger, not smaller, because I don't think we're going to all snap back into the office immediately. But what the business has learned is that lesson you just talked about with Home Depot and and Uh with with Best Buy is, you know what, Um, we can decide we're going to pick team or Slack in two days instead of two years. We can get a software release out in a few days if we have to. Uh Check about constraint-based management. You know, we now have this constraint and everything else comes off. So I, I think what it's done overall, though, is for DevOps and for all of us, it's, it's moved software from maybe second or third to number one. Our ability to get software out the door that's effective meets what we needed to do. But that is a strategic advantage, maybe even a survival advantage of what we've seen happen in this past year. Yeah, I think some of it is, you know, businesses like that are were forced to do it or die. Basically, you know, and I 100% agree with Cornelia that I think they look to DevOps and some of the practices that we're all used to, you know, the collaboration we need across functions to move forward. And, you know, all those things are key. Some of the foundations of um, automation, you know, that that has been key in the DevOps space. And I think they learn they need to take advantage of automation to do these things as well. So, um yeah, it's been fascinating to see that. that. And that's that was a point I brought up to see how businesses transformed and our world changed. And I think it's opened up endless opportunities for us moving forward. And to Sanjeev's point, I hope when that pendulum swings back, corporations take a look that this is no longer a corporate decision where people work. It has to be more joint. It has to be more personal because every situation is different. And if you want to maximize all your programs and HR diversity and all those things, you have to take that into account. I don't think you can do a one size fits all any longer. Um, and I still wonder if all those big office buildings, I worked in downtown San Francisco for many, many years. Are we going to fill those up again ever? I really wonder now if that'll ever happen. I could see it not happening quite honestly. I'm curious, yeah. Sanjeev, you've been in the middle of this, bringing two companies together with this new bank in the middle of all of this. Hmm. What in God's name was that like? What have you had? <laughs> what are the additional challenges you've had for that? Or maybe what opportunities has it created? Yeah, so I, I think it, uh, 
you know, I joined in the middle of the merger, right? So we were in the middle of it when I joined. So, but I can tell you in the 10 months I've been there, we have shifted a lot of priorities because of the pandemic, right? A lot of things which we would have done later on, we did first. Mm-hmm. We were able to uh, things and, uh, but the flexibility has definitely opened up. I can tell you between the time I joined and between now, the ability to hire people who are not local to, you know, one of our offices yeah. has gone through the roof. It used to be an exception, now it's the norm. Right, the last three people I hired, two are in the West Coast and one is in Minneapolis. Right, so Midwest. Um, it doesn't matter anymore. Right, same way, you know, uh, there are converse. You know, the the, the 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 aperture has opened up a lot. And when I look at it broadly, outside of where 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 you know who I'm working with, I'm, I'm, I'm when I'm talking to other companies where I have friends or colleagues, they are seeing more offshoring happen. Right, because they're going. Why do I need to hire somebody in LA if I'm never going to see the person? Ever anyway, does it matter whether he's in, in in you know Bangor or Bangalore, right? Let's put the person, let's hire the right person at the right place. So I think a lot of that has opened up. It has of course shifted some of the salaries also. So uh, you know there are a lot of things are are going on. In, uh, interesting dynamics are happening, and we'll see how that all pans out. Mm-hmm. But from from a from a perspective of you know doing a transformation, it is hard when you can't have people in the same room on a whiteboard. And things which could have just drawn on a whiteboard and knocked out in a in a one hour ninety minute working session, now it's like fifteen, uh, you know, Zoom views, Webex uh, or Teams calls, which could have been. And we're like, where's that white whiteboard we we made up? And you know, was it on on Miro or was it on Mural or was it on this or was it on that? You know, and who can edit it? Who can't edit it? All those, you know, dang it! If we just had a whiteboard, all of us in the same room, we could have knocked this out in half a day. So it is it is difficult to do certain things remotely. I think there has to be a balance, uh, which needs to happen. And uh, uh, yeah, during a merger, just made it made it more complex because we are going through change every day, right? People's networks are changing. People's, you know, how, how we are doing things are changing. We are updating stuff. Uh, it's been a very interesting few few months, and uh, we are not done yet. You know, the merger isn't over. We still got a, got a long way to go. Uh, so it'll, it'll be more fun uh, going forward, I think. I think it brings up the issue, though, is how much of this sticks, right? Because, I mean, look what Sanjeev just described. We've all had similar experiences, I'm sure, hiring people from all over the world. What difference does it make? They don't have to come in the office. Does that stick? Because if it sticks, there are profound implications for society in general. Why, why live in San Francisco unless you love the view of the bay? It's a beautiful bay, right? The bridge is nice. But pay $4,000 for a closet-sized one-bedroom apartment? Maybe not. Um, I mean, on the other hand, I I live in South Florida. Housing market's insane because of people moving here from New York and California and, and spending a fortune. Colorado, right? So does this, that's one example, does the ability to work from anywhere it makes no difference. Is that a, something that sticks around, or do we, as Sanjeev said in the beginning, see a pendulum start to swing back? What do you think? Well, for me, like I said, I, I, I think it 
elements of it have to exist and remain. I think there needs to be a balance, as Sanjeev says. I no longer think it'll entirely be a corporate decision where employees are located. I think for some roles and groups and organizations, there needs to be a deeper conversation on where is the best talent, you know, what's the best way to use them. You know, having having people sit just a commute. The one thing I don't miss is a commute. Oh my God, you know, those three hours a day commuting. You know, that to me, we, we have to somehow retain that benefit, you know, from working remotely somehow. I, I'm not sure how, but um, that's a very good question, Alan. I don't know. It's like, will those office buildings ever be full again? I don't know. So I, I'm not sure. But on that point, I've been, I've been remote since 20, 2013. In 2013, I was at IBM. I moved to a global role. And since then, I haven't had an office. I've worked mm-hmm. out of this room since then. But I used to travel 150 to 175,000 miles a year. Got it. Yeah. Right. So for me, the office was a place to go collaborate, whether it was my office or my company. Well, IBM's, for all of us. Yeah. Right. Or a, or a client's office. It was not a place to go and have a desk. Right. My desk is here. Right. My my books are here. My you know you, you know what I mean. Right. I mean, yeah. I think we should we should we I would like to see us go to that model where offices become more of a collaboration space rather than a place you have to show up and work yeah. alone in a cubicle. What's the yeah. point of that? Yeah. Unless somebody needs it. Like that's different. If they don't have space at home and they need a cubicle to work in, fine, put them in a WeWork next to where they live, right? Close to where they live, rather than have them commute to the other, you know, 45 minutes one way. I think that's the model we should head towards. Okay. And, uh, you know, the tools to enable that are there. We, yeah. we, we proved it. We yep. proved during the lockdown, during the pandemic, that the tools are there. But I hope it goes that way. I hope it doesn't go back to you have to show up in this yeah. cubicle, even if you are you know, like the guy from office space protecting the stapler and never talking to anybody. The and, and seen, seat model, right? Yeah. We've seen did, some did large you, orga- organizations make those calls already and say you can be remote forever now, you know, and things like that. So okay. I, I, I think that'll become a bit more selective, but I still hope when that pendulum does swing back that the employee has a say, you know, and his voice is a little bit t- taken more seriously. Or her voice. Or hers. Yeah. Or hers. Exactly. Or hers. That's, exactly. that's where I'd like to chime. I'd like to chime in there because Alan teed this up earlier. And then because you had two things, Alan, we 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 followed thread number two. I want to come back to thread number one, which is that this is has affected women in the workforce. And it's not just us technologists, but it's a, a broad spectrum. It's probably even more so. In, in other working arrangements. And so um, I love what you're saying there, Kurt, about it being a, a, a partnership between the corporation and the employee and determining what's best for them. And then Sanjeev, you, I think, just teed up, is that the survival um, you know, answer for WeWork? Is that part of that, that negotiation between the corporation and the employee, she or he, includes having the ability to move into a workplace that is close to your office, but allows you that space that you need, yeah. for example, not to be um, on, on call for, for childcare. Of course, the other thing I can't help but say, and I'm, I, I'm very fortunate. I have one son, he's 26. He, I'm not tying shoes or going to PTSA meetings anymore. I, so I wasn't affected in that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't affected in that way. Um, in the last year, but I was a working mother and I worked from home that whole time. And I just want to remind everyone, men and women, that you're right, women take on that burden, but it doesn't have to be that way. Amen. Fathers. So Mm -hmm. please 
pitch in even more than you think, just because it's been kind of the standard operating procedure. If nothing else, I hope the last year has maybe in some cases resulted in a, hey, a need-based way of rebalancing responsibilities. That is something that every single individual, male or female, can participate in kind of these societal expectations and challenging those. I think something you know happens. What? Oh, good, Rich. I'm sorry. When when things open up, when when opportunity happens and things make that shift, it's different when there's opportunity there. But when things have shifted and made a shift, they don't snap back to the old way automatically. It change. It transforms sort of the landscape going forward. And, and there's so many things about this. And you mentioned women, women in the workplace. We also have people of color. And we think about the emphasis of diversity that's happened over the last year and a half, which is all, which is fantastic. And we see so much more, um, you know, bringing to the forefront of women in leadership positions, uh, people of color being involved in security more, whatever it might be, you know, that I don't think that that changes. So hopefully those people who now are getting to participate in a, in a bigger, broader way or have more opportunity to do that, a, I don't think that's going to go away. B, that's going to change things for us, right? You know, may, maybe, Cornelia, here I'm speaking about what I don't know about, but maybe more, more women in leadership positions make some of those, you know, it's assumed that the woman at home does the child care, whatever, is part of our societal transformation. You know, that, that isn't necessarily an assumption that hopefully we can get past that and, and, uh, and remove that barrier, for people. So there is more opportunity. So Mitch, on that front though, here, here's the deal. Number one, I think the move to diversity is not necessarily COVID related. I think it's just an idea that it's time had come. It's, and it's been a long time coming. I totally Number agree. one. Number two, I think one of the positive things that happened is it wasn't just the woman stuck at home taking care of the kid. She was stuck at home taking care of the kid while the husband was trying to carve out a desk space in his bedroom somewhere to try to do a meeting or something, right? But what often happened, at least among my friends, and look, my kids also, Cornelio, they, they went away to college even though their college was online just to get out of the house from their mother and father who were, wouldn't let them breathe. But, um, but most like people I know whose kids were younger, the mother and father were home. They had to split split up delegate duties. You did the wash, I cooked the meals, you cleaned the table. I took the kids here, you took the kids there or you know entertained them now because you had work to do, I had work to do. In, in a in a in a best case scenario, it became very much a shared responsibility. Of course, not every every scenario or every, you know, instance has that best case outcome. There's a lot Maybe of people so out, you know. A journey to share. It may not be quite yeah. as okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. You've painted a fairly ideal picture. Yeah. That um, is an know, ideal picture. Yeah. Right. This this conversation is making me wonder, and I don't have these stats, but I wonder if anybody else has heard the stats. You're right, absolutely, that this this shift towards more underrepresented folks in leadership positions, women, people of color, um, they and so on that absolutely started before covid i wonder how covid has affected that have the numbers accelerated have they decelerated um i think 
I suspect the latter, and I'm pretty much an optimist, but I'm also a bit of a realist. And I wonder whether the last year has slowed down progress when it comes to diversity at the leadership level. I don't know. It's just a gut feeling. I'd love to see some metrics on that. I can tell you, Cornelia, in, 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 in IT roles, it has always been very difficult to hire people from minorities. Yeah, right? of course. Minority. It always has been. I personally believe it has gotten worse. Yeah. Because really? if you look at, especially leadership roles, senior roles, not we're not talking fresh college grads, most of those roles, no matter what anybody says, happen through referrals and connections, through your network. That's right. And that network stalled. The network stalled during the yeah, pandemic. Network, right? yeah. It is as big as it was then or grew slightly, right? That networking opportunities were gone. Yep. No meetups, no conferences, no lunches, no power breakfast, no women in technology meetups, nothing. The network stalled. You only knew the people you knew, right? Yep. And uh, yep. I think that hurt bad. I find when I'm trying to hire, when I, my peers are trying to hire, we are struggling more to have, see, you can't hire when you don't see the resumes. When there are no yeah, resumes sure. coming in, yeah. how do you hire, right? Yeah, and and yeah. I'm struggling. And I and if anybody has, if either one of you could, any one of you has any suggestions on how to fix that, I'm all in. Please, I'm all ears. Yeah, I was going to say think- it, it, you point out an anti-pattern to what I was going to say, Sanjeev. I was going to say at least with COVID and all the remote work, our talent pool has opened up, you know, worldwide. But you're saying that hasn't helped in that regard. It has for me with some of the roles I'm hiring. Now, granted, they're not director, senior director, VP level roles yet. But for the other roles, having the world as my talent, you know, the talent pool versus the United States. That I look it at it a bit differently. I look at it a bit differently, uh, Kurt. You know, hiring, uh, how do I, I want to make sure I say this properly. Hiring an Indian in India is not hiring a minority. No, true. Yeah. Hiring yeah. an Egyptian in Egypt is not hiring a minority. Hiring a Turkish person yeah. in Turkey is not a minority, right? Right. <laughs> they have to be minority in where you're hiring them. That's the only way it works. That's yeah, fair. I think I, I wanted Agreed. to comment on your I wanted to comment on your um, remarks, Sanjeev. I think that you're spot on um, because there were opportunities and the and some of the techniques that we have used in corporations to source um, diversity candidates or you know underrepresented candidates, those things went away. So being able to go to a historically black university or go sh- have your have your recruiters show up at women who code meetups, those those went away and those aren't the same. Sure, women who code still had meetups online, but it's not the same as walking around during the social hour and saying, or I've been at many meetups where at the, before they start the program, they say, okay, who's hiring? And everybody stands up. And then who's looking? Everybody stands up. All right, you folks talk. That's a, right. That was a very organic thing that mm-hmm. was not just so easy to say, how do you do that in an online setting? It's so you're right. It's, I, I, I hadn't even thought of that, but that whole network is the same now as it was a year ago is uh, remarkable, add, especially when it comes yeah. to leadership. Exactly. That's why, you know, the, the yeah. hiding from a historically black university, yeah. we can still do that today because the recruiters still know the counselors there. They still know the hiring of, uh, you know, the, the placement office or whoever does, you know, those networks are still there. It's just a network hasn't grown. When The higher you go, right, the air gets, you know, 
rarer, right? And yeah. those jobs are fewer. And you you are not screening 100 resumes to do that. You're relying on the network more than often, no matter what anybody else says, right? Mm-hmm. And that network stalled. I mean, I, I mean, I, who have you who have we met at a at a conference who we didn't know before? <laughs> now, when I yeah. go to a meetup and I see somebody I know, out. I'm I aiming that person, not some stranger who I've never met, right? Unless there's something really some reason to do that. Then yeah, no, no, no. This is it. It is the opposite. It has really hurt. I think we need to fix this. Yeah, we need to put this. Yeah, on but I want to. I want to suggest that. Yeah, your challenge, but I want to challenge that assumption, which is I hire leadership from within my network. Maybe that right there is the thing that we need to work on. We we need to work on what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. As far as I'm saying, I was saying that, you know, what we tend to go, tend to, we tend to stick, tend to grow our network to find leadership role, people, right? People in leadership. When you can't grow your network, you're reliant on what's already in your network, right? I mean, otherwise you're scouring LinkedIn or some other website or pinging people in your network asking for referrals. Yep. But that network stalled, the network didn't grow. I can't point to 50 people I met in the last year who were cool and interesting, who I did not know before, who were underrepresented minorities, who have somewhere who I would have met had I gone to reInvent or IBM Think or you know, DevOps world or all those uh, KubeCon or whatever. All the people I would have met, I didn't meet them. So that, that's a whole nother thing. Virtual events, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We've all, we've all spent significant portions of our lives at conferences. Cornelia, I, that's where I usually see you is at conferences. Sanjeev as well. Um, virtual events are cool. We put on one a month here at, at, uh, at MediaOps. Gene Kim does his DevOps Enterprise Summit virtually. People even paid money to attend it. And they, and all of the virtual events, they try to do a social thing to it. It's just not very good, frankly. It just, it's just not the same as being in the hallway or grabbing a drink at the bar or soda or whatever. You don't have to be drinking. But, you know, just not, it's not that. Someone said it before, face-to-face, person-to-person. I think it was Cornelia, you recently had a, an in-person. It's, just, it's not the same. It's not the same. I mean, so different than, than the three of you, Mitchell and I have had a chance to meet hundreds of new people this year. I do three to four to five of these interviews a day. My day starts with talking to people in Asia or Israel goes to Europe and through the Americas all the way to the West Coast. And what I found is that I've become a resource for people like you, Sanjeev, who say, hey, I'm looking for someone, you know, to head up cloud or DevOps or testing or what have you. And I go through, you know, who have I interviewed recently? <laughs> and, and, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and the question is, and I, you know, we're running we're getting near on time. I want to bring it back to DevOps and software, right? And, you know. I think you touched upon it from the beginning, Alan, the internet. You know, the fact that our technology infrastructure was able to, you know, shoulder the burden, that was pretty incredible to me too. You know, I expected Zoom to go out for weeks, if you will. Um, But I think it, it, it demonstrated that the technology infrastructure we had was pretty solid. You know, it allowed us to scale up pretty quickly, pretty massively. And, you know, 
there were outages here and there, but I would have expected a lot more. Min- so, minimal, <laughs> minimal. Even in counting all the DDoS attacks and the ransomware and all that nonsense, it was still minimal. So we had that infrastructure, but we also had this incredible capability to accelerate, to automate that DevOps kind of has been teaching us for seven, eight, nine years or more now, right? And that really helped. Curbside pickup in the, in the it's not just curbside pickup, it's the back end, obviously, right? That allows you to pull into that parking space and, and hit the button, say, I'm here, and this is the car I'm in, right? It, it, that kind of stuff. How many companies and jobs were saved by that kind of capability. Um, the other thing for me internally is I think it also opened up the ability to question everything just because, yeah. you know, at, at all levels, you know, whether you're designing a new feature, adding something to a product, designing a new process, is that the right thing? Just because we've done it like that, I mean, really question it because it, it, I think it, I mentioned this before, I think the opportunities exposed are endless now, really. It, it, it's, it's, uh, we haven't even started to take advantage of the things we've learned, I believe. We're starting to now, as Sanjeev mentioned, the pendulum coming back. Part of that is some massive learnings that we've also uh, had forced upon us, if you will. But I think we, we're going to come through it even stronger and better, for sure. Yeah. I think the, you know, I want to, I'd love to chime in here. on, yeah, I'd love to chime in on that scale. Um, you used the word scale, and, and these systems were able to scale and handle just a tremendous surge in traffic. Oh, yeah. and. When you said that, it took me immediately back to a DevOps Enterprise Summit where Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble, and those of you who don't yeah, know them, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah, should yeah. know them, know State that. of the DevOps Report, State of the yeah. DevOps Report, the, the book Accelerate. I remember this moment where they're on stage and Jez Humble, in his very humble way, hand in his pocket, says, turns out architecture matters. Yeah. <laughs> and and right. so it's it's having these systems that are designed to scale. And we find so many enterprises that have said, oh, well, you know what? Google scale, Amazon scale, that's not a problem that I need to face. Well, surprise, yeah, it is. maybe it, it is. is. Yep. And so architecture matters. And so I can't help as a you know, software architect coming back to that and saying, yep, yep there you go. <laughs> and I think we've seen companies who were, and there's two ways to look at it. One is ways to look at it from a scale perspective, other ways to look at it from a resilience and reliability perspective. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. which are two aspects of the same thing. It's, it's all architecture. Yeah. And I think companies realize very early that reliability and resilience are critical. Resilience to be able to make changes rapidly, right? Today I have, I don't have cups I pick up, tomorrow I have. Today I had 10 people doing this, tomorrow I'm gonna have 200 people doing this. Today I had a teller sitting in front of a terminal. So the user interface didn't need to be that cool. You know, the the, the things could hang and the teller could, you know, make sense, make Mm -hmm. small talk while the system is catching up. Well, nobody's accepting that on the mobile app when they're directly dealing with the website or the mobile. So I think that whole shift on resilience and reliability are real, are are important, and all that goes back to your point to uh, Cornelia to to architecture. Oh, yeah. that's that was front yeah. and center to people, and uh, you know, and I think I, I along think, with uh, that, uh, security. I think yep. security. This really exposed. We have to do more in security. We have to do more. You know, we have I to rethink security. Key learning. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. 
Guys, I hate to do this to you, but we I need to pull the plug on this. We already have people in my waiting room for our next interview. Um, what a what a great panel this is. I got we're gonna have to rerun this again and go to a part two because there's things I want to talk to about this as well. You know, I spoke to a guy today who started a new he calls it the mobile cloud for gaming. It's called now.gg because their research is that our kids, you know, these d digital natives, if they don't get a response in like a, you know, a half a second, they're gone. They're on to the next thing. And so what is what what does that mean for your banking apps? What does it mean for for what we're doing? But we we need to end this. Sanjeev, Cornelia, Kurt, Man, thank you guys so much. Thank you all so much for for making this an amazing panel. Thank all of our viewers out here for watching this. We hope you enjoyed it. Mitchell, I'm going to let you take it home. Well, I think you what a fascinating group and wonderful things to say. I think the biggest learning for me, and I really appreciate Cornelia and Sanjeev talking about the lost opportunity we have through networking to help people come together and and expand their networks. So let's invest in that going forward. We need to rebuild those and make mm -hmm. that happen. So I appreciate, I want to thank you for helping me understand that better. Absolutely. Many thanks to Tricentis for sponsoring this episode of DevOps Unbound. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh episode, a new panel, a new topic, but hopefully it's just as interesting a conversation. This is Alan Schimmel for MediaOps. Until next time, be safe and be well.